God, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are alive, that you are at work even in this room. God, we thank you that you take sinners like ourselves with all of our shame, all of our rebellion, all of our disobedience. And Lord, on the cross 2,000 years ago, you paid the ultimate ransom. You took our place. Lord, you removed it. You absorbed the wrath of God so that we can stand here today redeemed, accepted, and made righteous. So God, I pray that that would would change us, Lord, not just for all of eternity, but that would change us here today as we learn from you in John chapter 14. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's talk about Charlie Brown. So there's an episode in Charlie Brown, and, uh, and, and if you're a fan of Charlie Brown, there, there's a, an episode there where Charlie Brown is battling discouragement. He has a, a troubled heart, and he finds Lucy, um, his buddy Lucy, who has that, that therapist stand. You know, he deposits five cents, and he, he walks up to Lucy and says, Lucy, nobody likes me. Everybody hates my guts. Do you see that plane up there in the sky, Lucy? It's a plane full of people going somewhere else. That's what I would like to do. I'd like to go somewhere else, somewhere where nobody knows me. Then, with new people, I could get a fresh start. Do you think that's what I ought to do, Lucy? Go get a fresh start with new people who don't know me? And Lucy, who is, you know, just fresh from making that, that football away from him, replies, Charlie Brown, forget it, forget it. Once those new people get to know you, you'd be right back where you started from. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about that scene in John chapter 14 because it's interesting to look at Charlie Brown's strategy for dealing with a discouraged, troubled heart and then Lucy's strategy. See, Charlie Brown's strategy is to kind of run from it, to, to flee from the discouragement that he was feeling. But Lucy's strategy was just to accept it. Like there's no hope to actually dealing with this uh, kind of discouragement. And I thought that was interesting because I don't know if you know this, but each one of us, we, we have our own strategies for dealing with a troubled heart and with having discouragement w- within our lives. And I know for me personally, like I've got, I've got these three main strategies. I don't know if you can relate with me this morning, but my three main strategies is this. Number one, I want to try to run from it like Charlie Brown. Like I want to try to suppress it. I want to almost act like it's not there, right? That's, that's one strategy. Strategy two is I try to numb myself. Like I try to kind of distract myself, busy myself, entertain myself, at times run to sin, just to kind of self-medicate the, the discouragement that I feel in my own life. Or number three, I'll even fall into what Lucy and her advice, her strategy, and that is just to accept it. Like, I don't know what to do with this discouragement. I'm not sure if there's any hope. I don't know if this, ever, if this is ever going to change. And so I have a tendency to just accept it. I don't know about you this morning, but I am so thankful that those are not the only three options that we have in dealing with discouragement. At John chapter 14, Jesus offers a better way in handling our troubled hearts and the discouragement that you and I face. John chapters 14, 15, and 16 are some of the most practical and powerful chapters in John's gospel. And over the last couple of weeks, we've learned that Jesus is with his disciples, now 11 disciples, and they're in this upper room, 
and they're having one last meal before Jesus is about to be crucified just hours from now. And yet, I think it's really important for us to understand kind of the significance of John chapter 14, 15, and 16. We have to understand the the emotional climate of what was going on in this upper room, kind of the, the emotional temperature. And what we've learned from John chapter 13 is that the disciples had just got done arguing about who is the greatest. Remember that? They're, they're talking about who's, who's the better disciple, right? Who, who's going to sit at the right hand of, of Jesus? And in that moment, Jesus gets down and he washes the feet of each disciple. And then from there, he actually shares with them that there's one who is here among us who's going to betray me. All right, so, so the mood starts to shift again. Not only are you not the spiritual giants you thought you were, but there's someone here that's going to betray me. And yet not only that, but Jesus then says, and then Peter, kind of the, the rock of the group, the, the, the leader, the outspoken one, is actually going to deny me three times. So, so the mood is shifting even further. And then, we looked at this last week, he goes a step further and he says, oh yeah, and then I'm actually going to leave you very shortly here. Now imagine what the disciples were feeling in this moment. I mean, they're just probably overcome with not only confusion, but despair. I mean, here are the disciples who have given up everything for the last three years. They've seen miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching. They've seen just the popularity of Jesus grow, that the momentum is building. They're probably anticipating any moment now that Jesus is going to restore the kingdom of Israel. And what better time to do that than during the Passover feast this weekend. And yet, as they get into the upper room, things start to change. Disciples are probably wondering, where is Jesus going? Are are the Romans going to come and get us? Are are we about to die? That they're in this upper room, they're huddled around Jesus, and and anxiety and and despair and discouragement and, and trouble is starting to settle in into their hearts And yet Jesus has the audacity to say in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. After all of what he has just said, he kind of leans into them and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, it's interesting that he says that, not just because of what he just said to the disciples, but also just a few minutes before in chapter 13, verse 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. It's kind of interesting. So, so there must be kind of these two different categories, two different kinds of, of trouble that can fill our hearts. For Jesus, we know that he, he was without sin. And so Jesus' trouble was most likely this holy turmoil, this righteous unrest caused by love, not caused by unbelief. But in John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus tells them not to be troubled because there can be a, a kind of discouragement, and anxiety, and fear, and doubt that can cause an ungodly trouble to fill our hearts. And look, out of all of the the passages that we've looked at throughout John's gospel, this might be the passage that you and I can relate to the most. Like, we've all been there where what, what the disciples are feeling in this room, where the, you know, the cold clutch of fear just, just grips upon our hearts. We know what that's like. We know what the, the shackles of anxiety is like. We know that, that paralyzing feeling that, that fear brings or despair brings. We know the, the shattering questions 
of doubt. We know exactly what this is like, what the disciples are feeling. And look, while we can't prevent some of those experiences in our lives, we are still responsible for how we deal with the trouble that enters our lives. And I'm so thankful that Jesus provides a better way, that Jesus offers a better strategy in this passage. And so what I want to look at is what is the prescription for a troubled heart? And it's interesting, Jesus is very clear. Look with me at verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Here's the prescription. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. All right, that's, that's the answer for a troubled heart. This could be translated as trust in God or trust also in me. So the opposite of a troubled heart is one that is fully believing, fully resting, and fully trusting in Jesus. That is the answer. And that has really lined up with really the, the whole purpose, the whole goal of John's gospel. That if you remember John's thesis statement for why he wrote this book is this in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these are written so that you may believe, you may trust or be assured or treasure the reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So everything in John's gospel is trying to move us, the reader, towards either believing in Jesus for the first time, or if you are a believer, believing in Jesus more deeply. Now, that's nice, and that's a great challenge. And this advice that Jesus gives in verse 1 is, is, is helpful on one hand, but look, I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't stop there. I'm so thankful that Jesus doesn't just say, hey, in order to, to get over the troubledness in your heart, just believe in me. Just, just trust me. That, that's, that's true, and that's, and that's right. But, but Jesus also provides some things that are more helpful in the rest of this section. Jesus doesn't just say, you know, believe in me, believe also in, or believe in God, believe also in me. He doesn't look to Peter and say, hey, Peter, can you pass the bread Oh, wait, look at the time. I've got to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Hey, have fun uh, battling this life-dominating fear and despair. I got to go. Like, he doesn't say that there. Jesus is even more helpful and encouraging than we could ever imagine. And I think what he does here in John chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 is he lays before the disciples and lays before us a strategy for dealing with discouragement and a troubled heart. And so this morning, I want to look at three reasons why we should believe in God, believe also in Jesus as a way to battle our troubled hearts. Here's the first thing that I think Jesus points out here that's really helpful, is that Jesus provides perspective. Jesus provides perspective. In verses 2 through 4, Jesus says that he must leave them because he needs to go and prepare a place for them. Okay, now on the surface here, it looks as if Jesus' departure is going to cause harm for the faith of the disciples, and yet just the opposite is true. Jesus' departure is actually for the disciples' advantage and, and our advantage. And even when you look at verse 3 for a moment, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. On the surface there, it almost feels like it just like hits Jesus in the middle of this meal where he thinks, oh my goodness, I, I forgot to finish heaven. 
I forgot to complete the mansion of my father and, and I need to add some more additions and more rooms because there's about to be this influx of people after I die and am resurrected. It's almost like he's, he's you know, waiting to the last moment to go and prepare heaven for us. And yet we know that that cannot be the case because that would go against Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, which says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. When? From the foundation of the world. All right, so, so heaven and the room within the Father's mansion has already been prepared. It's been prepared before the foundation of the world. This is not Jesus waiting last moment. This is not G Jesus who you know, says, hey, Peter, I know that your faith is about to shatter here, but I need to grab my construction hat and go add some more additions. I'll see you guys later. Now, the, the house of God was not in shambles. The house of God was designed and suitable and ready for the redeemed people of God before the creation of the world. But there was something that Jesus needed to do in order to get the disciples and in order to get you and I there. See, what was not yet ready, what was not yet prepared, was the way to get to the Father's house. See, sin at this point had not yet been atoned for. Jesus, the substitutionary um, sacrifice on the cross for sinners, had not yet died. The, the wrath of God had not yet been satisfied. Death had not yet been defeated. Our enemy had not yet been crushed. Yet Jesus still had a mission to do. Jesus still had some work to do on the cross, dying in the place of sinners. So when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, it's not that the place was incomplete or flawed, but the way to get there had not yet been prepared. Now imagine hearing this as, as one of the disciples who's, who's heard everything that you just heard in chapter 13. Jesus is huddled around them in this, in this upper room and he is saying every obstacle, every barrier to getting you into heaven is about to be removed three days from now. Right? Jesus is saying that the room in the Father's house has been locked, has been blocked, has been barricaded because of your sin, but there's good news because I have the keys. That Jesus is about to use and, and purchase that room with his own blood on the cross in order for the place to be prepared for us to get there. Disciples are, are hearing this, not sure if they're fully tracking. Thomas kind of responds that, you know, lets us know that he may not be making this connection. But what Jesus is trying to provide is this perspective here of what he's about to do that can shrink our fears, shrink our anxiety, shrink our despair at the infinitely glorious truth that Jesus has made a way for you to get to heaven. Jesus says, so not, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. Jesus is wanting to overwhelm his disciples with hope, and so he adds layers to this reality, all right? Preparing a place that's nice that Jesus is going to the cross to make straight the path, but there are different aspects to verses two through four. These are really encouraging. Look at the first one, verse 2a. Jesus says that there are many rooms, Jesus is saying that God's house is large, that there's no shortage of space. And I think it's a good reminder for us that if you trust in Jesus, you have a room in heaven. There's not an amount of badness that you could commit or do 
that could keep you from being in God's house forever and ever because of the blood of Jesus. There are many rooms. Another layer to this is verse 3, that Jesus is coming back. Like that's, that's a huge source of encouragement for us, that Jesus doesn't abandon his people But Jesus, King Jesus, will come personally and he will come victoriously and he will bring the redeemed people of God with him forever and ever. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I can so easily forget about that reality. Like I can get so locked into the here and now, the busyness of my day, the the, the trouble that I face on a daily basis that I tend to forget, oh yeah, like heaven is real. Like Jesus is coming back. This is not all that there is. And for me in my own life, my, my trouble, like that ungodly trouble that takes root in my heart tends to grow when I forget about this reality. See, there's something about the reality of heaven that we're going to be with Jesus forever and ever that has the ability to impact how we deal with our trouble in the present. In fact, C.S. Lewis, um, who is written extensively on heaven and the the, the practical nature of heaven says this. He says, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. That if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It was because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. See, Jesus is trying to shape their perspective that this present moment is not all that there is, but there is uh, the reality of eternity that should impact how we process and deal with our troubled hearts. This should impact our parenting issues, our stress at work, marital strains, health issues, all of our troubles, because this is not all there is. Well, there's another layer to this that I love maybe the most. Verse 3, that if you trust in Jesus, you will also be with Jesus. This may be one of the most important phrases in this entire passage. Jesus says, I will take you to myself. Look, notice the shift from place to person, right? Where heaven is, there is Jesus. Where Jesus is, there is heaven. Or or as another pastor put it, the, the essence of heaven is the immediate presence of Jesus, Like, did you know this morning that the best part about heaven is Jesus? That that the best part about heaven is not the fact that there is no sin, no death, no crying, no pain, and there's loved ones all around. That's not the best part about heaven. Those things are great and and amazing, but the cure for a troubled heart is the reality that you will be face-to-face with Jesus forever and ever, the lover of your soul. Like, you'll, you'll never experience, I think, freedom from a troubled heart if that reality doesn't excite you. If that reality is something like, yeah, that's cool, but man, I can't wait to see Grandpa Joe who passed away a few decades ago. Like, like, what that reveals, if that doesn't excite you, is that your Jesus is actually too small. 
Like your troubles are, are too big. If the reality of being with Jesus in his presence doesn't stir these affections and these longings for him, that creates the ability to go to war with your anxieties and your fear and your despair. See, what it reveals is that your heart might be consuming your troubles more than the beauty of Jesus, more than the victory of Jesus, that Jesus wins in the end, that your troubles have an expiration date. So Jesus, I think, provides encouragement by reminding us and his disciples of the eternal perspective that should shape how we deal with our troubles today. So that's the first thing. The second thing that Jesus does is he brings clarity, brings clarity, not only perspective, but clarity. Jesus gets in this conversation with his disciples and and says, look, you guys know the way because you know me. And then Thomas in verse five says, Lord, we don't know the way. We, We don't really know what you're talking about here. And so Jesus then drops the verse six bomb, right? The, one of the most important and, and well-known verses in all of scripture where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then verses seven through 11, Jesus uh, uh, brings up this theme that we've seen over and over again in John's gospel where he talks about the oneness with the Father, He says, my works have proved this reality that I'm united with the Father. So look, if you believe in me, you believe also in the Father. But in these verses here, John introduces to us the sixth I am statement. Remember, there are seven of these I am statements throughout John's gospel. And John is using these I am statements to show both the deity of Christ, that he is God, and also the unique ways that he's bringing salvation and satisfaction for his people. Now, it's, it's impossible to exhaust the significance of, of, of verse 6, that Jesus is the way. I think what Jesus is doing here is, you know, he's, he's responding to, to, to what Peter has to, or what, what Thomas has to say here, because Thomas is, is almost looking for a literal roadmap. Like, I want a specific destination. I want, you know, specific directions to this place that you're talking about. And Jesus responds not with a destination, not with a place, but with a person. He responds with himself, right? So, so it's not like Jesus is blazing this trail. He's, he's you know, setting forth this way, and he's saying, hey, guys, come follow me to heaven. But what Jesus is actually saying is that I am the way. I am the path in order to get to the Father who is in heaven. Now, why should this encourage us when we have ungodly trouble in our hearts? This should encourage us because I think Jesus is providing something that we tend to lose first when ungodly trouble enters our hearts, and that is clarity. Like when our hearts is, are filled with all of these issues in life, one of the first things that we tend to lose is we lose sight of which path, which way to take, not just to experience eternal life, but to experience satisfaction, purpose, and hope. That, that when we're in kind of a season of ungodly trouble, that's when we are most susceptible to considering alternative routes and ways in order to experience satisfaction, hope, and purpose. And I think what Jesus is doing here is he is bringing a much-needed sense of clarity and a much-needed reminder for us this morning. Jesus says, no, no, I am the way. 
I am the only way to the Father, and I am the only way for you to experience satisfaction, purpose, and hope. This is an exclusive claim. It's important to know. Jesus is not saying that there are multiple roads to get to heaven, not multiple ways to the the same top of the mountain. Jesus is saying, I am the only way to the Father. Imagine how encouraging and maybe exhorting this must have been for the disciples here who are probably considering alternative routes and ways after they're hearing that Jesus is about to leave them, right? And that is a very real temptation when we go through um, ungodly trouble in our own lives. And so yet Jesus is providing this clarity. But simply knowing that Jesus is the only way is not enough. So you must trust and believe that he is the only way in a way that impacts how you live in the present. There's a story of, a, uh, of an Irishman who was walking alongside a road one day, and he was carrying this huge sack of potatoes over his shoulder. And he was walking very slowly because this huge sack of potatoes was kind of weighing him down. And there was a man who was driving a truck, and he saw this man walking, and so he stopped. And he said, hey, can I give you a ride? And the Irishman said, yeah, that'd be great. So he gets in the back of the truck. The man starts to drive off and he looks in the mirror at the Irishman who is sitting in his truck, but he's still hoisting the the sack of potatoes over his shoulder. Still, Still kind of struggling to keep it up. And the man stopped his truck. He got out and he asked the man, what are you doing? And the man responded, well, I didn't want to add more weight to your truck. And spiritually speaking, That reality is perhaps true for some of us here today, that that you might have gotten on board the truck of Christianity. You might be in church week in and week out, but perhaps the reality is is that you're still holding on with a white-knuckle grip, the, the bag of your sin and shame and troubles. And the hard part is that you know Jesus is the way. But for some reason, you, you might believe that the only option to dealing with your sin and dealing with your troubles is to keep hoisting it up and keep carrying it. And you are here tired. Your soul is, is spiritually fatigued because you're not sure what to do with the sin and the shame and the trouble in your life. Look, if that's you this morning, can I just, again, draw your attention to verse 6 and what Jesus has to say, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Not you hoisting your sin up over your shoulder. Not your ability to to work your way into heaven and and to earn a spot into one of these rooms in the Father's house. But it's by trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone. Look, I wonder if you can hear even Jesus whispering to your soul this morning, look, I'll take your bag of sin and shame and troubles. Lay it down before me. I I will carry. You're you're not designed to carry that load. That that will weigh your soul down. Trust in me. I think Jesus' clarity here is so needed because what sin and ungodly trouble tends to do, it tends to bring this fog around our hearts. And so Jesus wants to remind his disciples and remind us this morning to trust in him and him alone. So Jesus provides perspective. Jesus brings clarity. And then thirdly here, Jesus promises purpose. Jesus promises purpose. Look with me at verses 12 uh, through 14. 
Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, verses 12 through 14, Jesus um, is offering and, and stating a huge promise. Right? What he is saying here is whoever believes in him, referring to all Christians, this isn't just for the super Christians or for uh, the apostles, but all Christians, what Jesus promises is that he or she will be doing the works or the deeds that he has been doing and even greater works than these. Now, how do we make sense of this? Like surely Jesus is not saying that every Christian will perform greater miracles than what he has performed, right? That would actually go against 1 Corinthians 12, verses 29 through 30, stating that not all Christians have the gift of miracles or healings, prophecies, uh, and speaking in tongues. Nor do I think that we can interpret the meaning of this to refer to more works, that they're greater because the Spirit is about to abide in all of all the believers, and so as all of us perform these good works of loving and serving that they're then considered greater than what Jesus has done because they're more than what Jesus has done. If Jesus meant that, there, there's a way to state that very clearly and, and in a different way. But I think the key here is to understand the place in redemptive history in which Jesus said these words. Remember again, we're, we're not on this side, of, we're not post-cross yet. Right? Jesus is in the upper room. This is pre-cross, pre-death, pre-resurrection, pre-ascension, pre-outpouring of the Spirit of God. So he says, according to the end of verse 12, these greater works will be performed because he will go to the Father. Okay? In other words, Jesus needs to go and do something. He needs to go and die. He needs to be raised. He needs to be seated at the right hand of the Father in order for these works to be considered greater. See, they're, they're greater in the sense that the works that the disciples will do and the works that you and I uh, do have never been done in the history of the world. Now, what are those? Well, the works that you and I can do and the disciples can do is the offering of forgiveness to individuals by pointing them to a Savior who has already died, who has already resurrected, and who has already ascended, not who will die. See, the reality here is up until this point in the upper room, salvation was in anticipation of what would come. It was a promise of what the Messiah would eventually do. But now, in this moment, the purchase of forgiveness has been already completed once and for all. In fact, at the end of John chapter 20, Jesus will say to his disciples, you will receive the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, there will be forgiveness of sin outpouring through your ministry. And so what is Think about this for a moment. What is greater than the works that Jesus has done? Jesus did some crazy things. He raised Lazarus from the dead, walked on water, changed water into wine, healing blind people. But what is greater than all of those is when you have a soul that is dead in their sins and their transgressions. 
and they are raised to new life by the Spirit of God. That that is greater, and that is a work that is accomplished in and through our proclamation and sharing of the gospel of a Savior who has already died. Here's what John Piper has to say about this. He was much smarter than me. I'll lean on him here. He says that I think Jesus would have said this, even when I have forgiven sinners during my earthly life, I have forgiven them in anticipation of that. But you, talking to the disciples, but you will forgive them in the name on the finished basis of that. That the spirit in you will be the spirit of the crucified and risen Christ. That the message you preach will be the message of, of not of a promised ransom, but a paid ransom, a complete payment, a finished propitiation. And look, that is a greater work. So when you point people to Jesus, when you share the gospel with others, you are participating in a greater work in that moment, saying that the forgiveness of sins is yours because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Now, why should this encourage us? How, how does this interact with our own troubles and our own despair? Because look, it reminds us that we have a purpose. It reminds us of the mission that Jesus has given us to know Jesus and to make him known to others. And I think that's important because sometimes when we go through hardship, when we have ungodly trouble in our hearts, it's so easy for us to become inwardly obsessed. It's so easy to just think about ourselves and to think about how can I just get through this? How can I just take another day? And we lose sight of our mission and our purpose. See, one of the best medicines to a troubled heart is when you look up and out at those around you, is when you are basking in the beauty of Jesus and you are talking about him with other people. But something happens, I think, within your own heart where the grip that fear and anxiety and despair had around it is loosened. When you start talking about the power of Jesus and you begin to clutch on to him and you are consumed with the finished work of what Jesus has already accomplished. So Jesus is, I think, laying seeds for the Great Commission, something that he will share with them just weeks from now because he doesn't want the troubledness in their heart to hijack the purpose that he has in store. And so this morning, are you troubled? Do you have things going on in your life that are weighing you down? Are you participating in these three things? Is your perspective shaped by eternity? Do you have a clarity from Jesus that he is the only way, not only for eternal life, but to seek satisfaction, purpose, and hope? And are you living out your purpose, even in the midst of hard things, to know Jesus and to make him known with others? Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your grace. God, we thank you that you are, Lord, so tender with your disciples in the upper room here. Lord, as you have sensed and yet you have known that they were um, wavering in their trust and their belief in you, and yet, God, you leaned into that and you provided a strategy for how to combat that troubledness. And God, it's so helpful for us to hear that, and I pray, God, that we would be a people marked by eternity, knowing that you have purchased and made a way for us to be saved, to be with you forever and ever. 
And so, God, I pray that you would help us to apply that reality to what we are going through in the present. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.